Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I'm Hemant Mehta, and I'm flying solo today. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. And by the way, we now have merchandise shop on the website. So if you want your podcast swag, and you know you do, go to our website and click on the store tab. Robin Blumner spent 16 years as a nationally syndicated columnist and editorial writer at the Tampa Bay Times newspaper, where she wrote a lot about civil liberties, church-state separation, and free speech issues. In 2012, she was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, along with the rest of her editorial team. Before she was writing professionally, she headed up ACLU affiliates in Florida and Utah. She entered the world of organized atheism, if you will, in 2014 when she was tapped to run the Richard Dawkins Foundation. Recently, RDF announced a merger with the Center for Inquiry, and Robin will soon become CEO of the newly merged organization. So, Robin, thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. And actually, my first day was January 25th. So oh, I am fantastic. on board with you are CFI. On board. <laughs> so how did you get involved with the atheism world? Because that seems like a far cry from certainly writing for a newspaper, but even uh, from the ACLU. It's not that far afield from the ACLU in some ways, because there are a lot of overlapping interests, particularly around church-state separation. And you might suspect when I was the director of the ACLU of Utah, I did a lot of that kind of work. <laughs> Um, I used to joke that a piece of legislation would go through a tricameral legislative process in, U- in Utah. There would be the House, the Senate, and the church office building, <laughs> and nothing would become law unless all three approved. Uh, so I did quite a bit of, of legal work around church-state separation while I was with the ACLU, and then I wrote about it quite a bit when I was a columnist and editorial writer. Uh, my beat, if you will, for the Tampa Bay Times, which previously had been named the St. Petersburg Times, people might know it better by that name, was uh, every constitutional issue that came down the pike. I have a, a legal background. I'm a lawyer. Uh, I obviously did a lot of legal work relative to civil liberties, and so it made sense to give me the, the Supreme Court issues and the constitutional issues. So I, I wrote about... Um, encroachments on reproductive freedom by religious authorities. Um, I wrote about the fact that I was an atheist in a column in 2004. In fact, I sort of quietly boast in my own 
brain and now on your podcast that <laughs> my column came out one month before the publication of Sam Harris's book, The End of Faith. So you are one of so, the new atheists who came out publicly. <laughs> oh, yes. I came up forcefully and publicly in 2004. I had never been a closet atheist, if you will. I've been an atheist since I was 11 or 12 years old uh, and always told people that I was such proudly. But it wasn't something that was routinely brought up, and I, and I wasn't part of the activist movement. So I think I was at the periphery of the movement for a very long time. The reason I stepped into uh, a more activist role was a confluence of factors. One was that I'd been an editorial writer and columnist for 16 years, and um, I was ready for something new, a new challenge. I had been in nonprofit administration and progressive advocacy for the first 10, 11 years of my professional life. I had a lot of wonderful friends from that community, and I missed it. So that was part of the, the re rationale. And the other part was the newspaper industry itself was slowly deteriorating, uh, very, very sadly in my view. Um, print newspapers have uh, limited shelf life in America. And I didn't think necessarily that newspapers would survive my professional life. I have, you know, good 10, 15 plus years more of uh, workplace life. And I didn't know that print newspapers would be around that long. So it was time for me to rethink what my professional goals were going to be. And it made sense for me to return to my first love and something I knew I was very good at, which was to head up a, an activist organization. Right around that time, uh, as I was reaching out to some friends in the progressive movement, I had learned that the Richard Dawkins Foundation was looking for new, new leadership. And so I applied for that job. I had a Skype interview with Richard from his home in Oxford. And the rest, uh, as they say, is history. I want to come back to that. Let me go back for just a second. If I recall correctly, that 2004 article you wrote in which you came out publicly anyway to, to your readers as an atheist, that caused a huge stir. I think the Freedom From Religion Foundation even gave you like an award for it. You, you spoke about it at their convention. Um, what was the reaction you got when that article came out? Because that might be normal today a lot of people have come out as atheists publicly like that but i don't that wasn't happening like you like you suggested in 2004 the reaction was positively monumental i had never received the masses of email and letters that i received after that column and believe it or not overwhelmingly positive in fact, I, I received 700 or 800 emails or letters in response to that column, and maybe 50 or 60 were antagonistic or telling me that I'm going to hell. <laughs> so what generally I got was this incredible outpouring of relief that someone finally is representing 
the views of non-believers in mainstream media. People told me they've, they've been reading newspapers their entire lives, and these are people, 70s, 80s, who said they've been daily newspaper readers their entire life, and they've never before seen their point of view represented in the mainstream press, which is really sad. I mean, if you think about just the millions of people in America who are atheists, who are non-believers, for them not to ever be represented, never have a voice in print newspapers, demonstrates that there's there's just tr still tremendous hostility, antagon antagonism, and stigmatization toward the community. And I'll I'll say that maybe the light went on after that column came out that there was an ongoing civil liberties, maybe more like a social equity issue in America where atheists could not get elected to public office. Atheists were automatically marginalized. They were automatically deemed somehow less American. And that was that's outrageous. I'm yeah. not less American. I'm as patriotic <laughs> as they come. But... The general populace didn't see me as such. As we're speaking right now, I think the Pew Research found it, the Pew Research people came out with a study today that actually said 51% of Americans would be less likely to vote for a presidential candidate who was an atheist. So you're right. It's still the biggest political liability out there. And it is the kind of thing that can be wiped away. I think fairly easily with just a little bit of public awareness. Um, and that is why the Richard Dawkins Foundation launched the Openly Secular Campaign, which is a campaign that's similar to others that, that other organizations have done. Um, in fact, they had a previous iteration at the Dawkins Foundation as the OUT campaign. But I know that Freedom From Religion Foundation has done something similar. American atheists have done something similar. The Openly Secular campaign was launched in 2014 as a coalition of groups putting forward the idea that, that if you come out, if you come forward, if you say that you're a secular person, a non-believer, an atheist, agnostic, humanist, skeptic, whatever you want to call yourself, that that will break down pernicious stereotypes. Uh, we know that this was an incredibly successful tactic of the LGBT community. We know that that community was able to go from, from really social pariah to widespread acceptance in a generation or a generation and a half, and that by telling friends, neighbors, loved ones, and coworkers who they really were, that, that made all the difference in the world. And it can do, the, and the same thing can happen for the secular community. It's just a matter of people understanding that it's important to do this. Some people just go along fairly. Uh, easily in, in life without ever having to mention that they're a non-believer. They just don't think it's worth it. It's not quite the same thing as the LGBT community where they had to change society and societal attitudes in order to live the life that they were intended to live, that their body um, demanded they live. Well, for non-believers, it's not the same thing. To come out and to be, come forward 
really is a social good as opposed to maybe a personal one. But we have to convince people that there are real-life consequences to keeping that part of yourself quiet. And they have to do with the fact non-believers are right now precluded from the public policy table. So you either have elected politicians who are believers, true believers, or who are somewhat hypocritical. And they claim to hold a faith, but in fact really don't. The people who, like us who are willing to say out loud that we simply don't believe are not electable, just as you said with the Pew poll. That means that our political system is further skewed toward religious privilege, toward the idea that being religious is better, toward the idea that religion should equate to a set of values that every human being should have, when in fact most of those values are humanist values, they're ethical values. And so that has a consequence in in terms of public policy on stem cell research, on abortion rights, on birth control, climate change, whether evolution gets taught in school, same-sex marriage, and all of those cultural and political issues have at their core, in many ways, a disagreement over whether someone subscribes to a religious faith or not. Now, one of the things the openly secular campaign has been able to do is get a lot of celebrities like uh, Bill Maher. I mean, we know he's an atheist, but there were celebrities who participated in these campaigns, uh, Arian Foster, the NFL star, to come out and say they're not religious. Do you think there's any hope we can get some politicians to join in that mix anytime soon? Well, we did get Barney Frank. Right. Uh, of course, of course, he was retired by the time we we got him to come out as openly secular. Uh, we what would be nice is to have politicians who are currently in public office to do so, and that's tricky. It's going to be difficult in an election year. I think that there's a lot of uh, hope that we will get sitting politicians at the Reason Rally, which will occur June fourth at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. Um, no announcements yet on who has been <laughs> enlisted, but I know the Secular Coalition for America is working very hard at getting sitting politicians to the podium. Um, they're going to be the hardest hurdle to jump. They're, the Pew poll speaks loudly at what they're sacrificing and risking by coming out as a non-believer. What we're asking for within Openly Secular, however, is not that they proclaim their non-belief, but rather they accept that there are social consequences and maybe even economic consequences to being an open atheist and an open non-believer in the United States. And that is flatly unfair. We don't need you as a politician to say that you're a non-believer. We only need your support for the community at large to say that fundamental fairness demands that there not be this undercurrent of hostility toward the non-believing community 
in the United States where people actually do risk their friendships, their family relationships, and possibly their jobs and their businesses by being openly secular. So I think it's a possibility to move that baby step forward and then eventually, hopefully, have openly secular, openly atheist uh, politicians who can prove you can get reelected even hmm. when you're labeled as such. That would be very we nice. We used to have one, right? <laughs> yeah, Pete we did. Stark, wasn't he? Yeah, Pete, Pete Stark came out as an atheist long after he had been in the House of Representatives. And when he eventually got defeated uh, in an election, I don't think anyone suggested that it was because he had come out as an atheist. I think that's true, yeah. yeah. Uh, let me go back for a second. So you, when you wrote your article in 2004, uh, Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, came out in, I believe, 2006. Did you read that book at the time? Did you? What did you think of Dawkins before you started working for RDF? I was a big fan of Richard Dawkins before RDF. I'd read The God Delusion when it first came out. I'd also read some of his evolutionary biology books, thought they were patently brilliant. Um, I had maybe seen him, seen his writings beyond that in uh, periodicals. If his name was attached to something, I would be interested. And so, but I what didn't was realize it? that he had he had gone the additional step of forming a foundation after the God Delusion came out, and was putting his personal reputation, work ethic, and uh, resources, including financial resources, behind trying to help America become more scientifically literate and secular. I remember meeting I him right before. I was I, thrilled at that. Yeah, I am too. I remember meeting him a little before the God Delusion came out, and he said he was really interested in starting this foundation to to spread reason and science. He actually didn't want his name on it. But the people who were advising him on how to start a foundation said, no, 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 you need to put your name on it because people know who you are and it'll lend the organization more credibility, which is why it ended up getting branded with his name. Uh, when you got in touch with him, when you got this job running his foundation, what were the big things that you wanted to do and did you get to accomplish them in the, the time you were there? I have been with the foundation actually just under two years, February 5th was the date I started in 2014. So it was a, a fairly short run, but I think we've accomplished some really remarkable programming in that time. Uh, one, one thing I wanted to do was to start a membership program. The foundation had been surviving simply by raising money through private donations without asking people to become members. But I know that uh, from from my personal experience, that I want to feel like I'm part of a bigger whole. I want to have an organization that I support be reflected in my direct participation. So holding on to a membership card, knowing that I'm part of a larger community, it's important, important, and it's a way that I feel connected and more engaged. So I wanted a membership program. That took a while to get going because some of the governance documents had to be changed in order to make that happen. It's the kind of backroom stuff about an organization that nobody is interested in, right. but absolutely essential that you have to get right. Um, 
So that was a great success. The the openly secular campaign, which was heavily uh, supported by Todd Stiefel and the Stiefel Free Thought Foundation, was another important initiative, and we helped to guide that with the direct participation of Todd, um, the Secular Coalition for America, and the Secular Student Alliance. So it was really four groups that came together to make sure that the Openly Secular campaign was successful and got off the ground. It is, it's now uh, being run primarily out of RDF, but the Secular Coalition for America and, and SSA are still partners. Coalition partners include almost the entire secular movement. Um, everyone kind of signed on to the campaign, and that was part of the reason we used the term secular as opposed to atheist or some other uh, designation, because we wanted it to be an umbrella term. That that has been going great, and as you indicated, part of the reason we're getting attention for it is the connection to celebrities. And part of the reason we get celebrities interested is because Richard Dawkins' name is behind it. It really is important to bring a superstar to the table to attract other superstars. And he had never, you know, he's a really, I know people aren't going to believe this, he's a really humble guy. And he doesn't really like to ask for favors or ask people to do something on his behalf, even if it's not for him personally, it's for a larger movement. But now we've been asking him to reach out to his celebrity friends and get them enlisted, and that has made all the difference. So having celebrities is very important, not only to pierce um, the general consciousness of the people in the movement, but to reach out beyond the movement, movement and make sure the general public is made aware that we exist and that we are a marginalized minority that, uh, that needs some, some restitution, if you will. Yeah, and I I don't think people really um, yeah. understand how important those celebrity endorsements, if you will, really are. Because when someone you look up to in a different world says, oh, by the way, I'm an atheist, I'm secular, whatever term they want to use, that makes it so much easier for us to reach outside of our bubble. And that's one of the powers, you're right, that Dawkins brings to the table. He can get those people to do things that, you know, most of us never could. And that's really powerful. They answer his email. Yeah, Whether or right. not they say yes right. is a different story. But he can it's he can reach out person to person. And that is an incredibly powerful tool to have in our uh, toolkit. It's, there's nothing like it. And I don't think he gets so, enough credit yeah. for using his fame and his wealth. I mean, usually when you put those things together – uh, it's something to benefit himself. Uh, that's the gist of what you would think of anyone who's famous and rich. And yet he's still fighting for the same cause he's been fighting for more than a decade, just trying to get people to accept uh, atheism as, you know, it's not a bad thing. And he's doing that very much behind the scenes is what you're saying. He is. He's devoting incredible amounts of personal resources and bandwidth to helping non-believers in the United States primarily. Now, the, the foundation doesn't just operate in the United States, but most of our work is here. So Openly Secular, big initiative, still ongoing. The celebrity piece is essential, and we are continuing to look for opportunities. We think the Reason Rally will help 
hugely in adding to the the video library of openly secular. Remember, it's not just celebrities; it's average people too, right. which is important. Uh, but as you say, celebrities bring eyes, and they bring people from outside the community to the campaign. The the other important initiative we launched was something called the Teacher Institute for Evolutionary Science (TIES). The Teacher Institute for Evolutionary Science is a, a, a professional development program for middle school science teachers, teaching them how to teach evolution. What we see is that middle school science teachers are afraid to teach evolution, even if they want to. They don't necessarily have the knowledge, tools, or confidence to do so. Many of these teachers don't come from science backgrounds. They instead come with degrees in elementary education. Right, and which they're is really, not specified. really not prepared to teach a subject that is not only complicated, it's controversial. Amazingly, it's controversial because, you know, come on. They're it's, afraid of parent backlash. <laughs> parent backlash, student backlash, administrators either uh, who don't support the idea of, of teaching evolution or who are, are creationists themselves. Um, so we have been putting on professional development workshops around the country. Our director of the program lives in Miami, Bertha Vasquez. She is an award-winning middle school science teacher. She has developed, um, the curriculum that's based on the next generation science standards. We try to marry the specific programs and, and workshops to the state requirements in the state that we're, we are operating. She has put together what she calls the TIES Teacher Corps, teachers from around the country who are specialists in uh, evolutionary biology or evolutionary science who will give these workshops. So it's not just Bertha doing them. It's people, we have, I think it's up to 30 or 35 teachers around the country who have signed up to give workshops themselves. Uh, we try to get teachers, middle school teachers, professional development credit and the, do it on a day where they're released from classes for that purpose. Uh, and, and Bertha did a webinar last year where over 200 teachers from across the country signed up wow. to learn about evolution. All the tools, all the online tools are available on the website. We give them prepackaged PowerPoints, labs. They can do with their, their students, video resources. We try to make it sort of turnkey ready, classroom ready, so they don't have to do anything but present the material. And just to be and clear, been, none of this is proselytizing atheism. Yeah. Say again. None of this is like saying, oh, by the way, atheism rules. It's it's very much secular. It's very much sticking to the science. It is entirely sticking to the science. There's not a hint of atheism in this curriculum. This is this is evolutionary science in its purest form. And we tell teachers if they're being challenged on religious grounds, they simply have to sit point to the textbook that they're using and say, I'm teaching the science based on evidence that's available in science textbooks. If you'd like to talk about religion, you should talk about it with your family and your religious leaders. It's completely irrelevant to what this course is. This course is teaching facts based on evidence. 
so let so me let me move forward for a second as uh just because we're running low on time let me run forward a little bit how did discussion of the merge with cfi when did that discussion begin and what will you be able to do now that you're in charge of the combined rdf and center for inquiry uh well cfi approached rdf uh in mid early to mid 2015 with the idea of merging operations it seemed to make sense at the time that if, if Ron was stepping away, um, that no, nothing gets decided about a merger until the new CEO was in place. At the same time, I was urged by my board to put my hat in that ring. And if it happened that I was made CEO, then it would be more likely that the merger would take place. But it wasn't, one wasn't contingent on the other. Uh, there still might have been a merger had there been a different CEO chosen, but but RDF would have to evaluate whether that person was was acceptable to us, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, the the mission of both organizations perfectly aligned. The mission of the Center for Inquiry is to foster a secular society based on science, reason, freedom of inquiry, and humanist values. Basically, the mission of the Richard Dawkins Foundation is the same, the promotion of a scientifically literate and secular world. Um, So I think think it's a wonderful marriage uh, that will provide incredible synergies for the movement. Because on the one hand, you have the publishing powerhouse of CFI that brings tradition, it brings a, a reputation for getting things done, for established programming, and for having the people power to effectuate programming. RDF, we, we're tiny, you know, just a few people, but RDF has this tremendous social media presence has a lot of youth and energy, entrepreneurialism, and risk-taking. So bringing those two cultures together, one will enhance the other. And I, I feel like Richard Dawkins Foundation will continue to, to exist as a division of CFI, and it, I feel like it'll be the, the experimental arm of CFI sort of like the proof of concept. Let's let's try it there. Let's see if it works. And if it works, we can scale it and you bring it into it a larger organization and build it. And Richard Dawkins is now going to be on the board of CFI as well. Does that change anything or he just has a say in what goes on? He won't be on the board. He won't be the chair of the board as he is with RDF. The entire RDF board is becoming part of the larger CFI board um, and we will see those those meetings won't start until basically after the reason rally because mm-hmm. we're 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 doing sort of a, um, a glide path to full integration. It's going to take a while from the legal standpoint to get you know submissions finalized. Sure. But pretty much after the reason rally, we will be one organization and we'll have a combined board going forward. Good. Um, I do have one more question for you. I have to ask you pretty much. I think it's legally required at this point. Uh, 
one of the things that happens when you bring up Richard Dawkins' name is that I am like you. I think of the science books. I think of the God Delusion. And it's like, oh, yeah, I really like this guy. But a lot of people, especially younger ones, will look at the things, you know, Richard Dawkins tweets on occasion, which makes so much fodder for his critics who say, look at the way he phrased that. Look at the way he worded that. He's insensitive to the plight of, you know, all of these particular groups of people. So I guess my question to you is, as the RDF leader, uh, someone who knows Richard Dawkins better than most of us do, what's your reaction to all that, all of those uh, articles that are published on Salon or blog posts uh, criticizing him for this stuff? Do you think it's just him misunderstanding stuff? Do you think people are just looking to latch lash out against him? What's the deal? I think if you can generate a lot of controversy around the name of a high-profile person. It brings a lot of attention to what you're writing, and there's a little part of this that is uh, self-aggrandizement by the people writing these posts. I I will also say that not everything that Richard says on his Twitter feed reflects the views of RDF or CFI. So, you know, it's sort of like if you're... If your dad or your brother uh, <laughs> says something that you may or may not agree with, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're speaking for the family. Sure. Uh, so we we need to make sure that uh, organizations don't get attributed to everything that anyone who's associated with them says. But do you um, think he's misunderstood when he says certain things, or is it just a matter oh, of it was sloppy? I, and I think I think Richard Dawkins is purposely misunderstood at times mm-hmm. as a way to generate clicks on some blogger's page. It's it's because his name brings page views and eyes, so why not generate a lot of heat around something that is pretty tame if you really unpack it. So let me play devil's advocate. Let me play devil's advocate for a second, because I think a lot of those critics would say, we're not going after him because we want page views or clicks. We're going after it because this is a guy who represents a lot of atheists, uh, the biggest name in atheism, if you will. And he's saying things that uh, either he should have been more careful about, he should have been more sloppy. And by the way, I know it's unfair to ask you to speak on his behalf. I'm well aware of that. But as someone who knows him, uh, like, is there a reason he's, I guess, less careful with his tweets than he might be with his books? Do you know if he's ever thinking like, oh, why is everyone misunderstanding me? Uh, what insight can you bring to us? Because, you know, it's harder to get in touch with him, maybe. <laughs> I think there are times he is serious. I think there are times he is sincerely surprised by the outcry that results from some of the things he tweets because they've been misinterpreted, misunderstood, sometimes purposely, I think. Uh, Sometimes it's because he might have put something in artfully. And so. I've I've asked him in the past, and he's done this at times, to write a fuller account of what he intended to say sure. and some of the reasoning behind it, post it to the website, and then tweet out a link so yeah. that people can, rather than just complain about 140 characters, <laughs> they can then read his rationale 
And if they still object to it, okay, but at least they, they would fully understand what he was intending. Sure. It's almost like you can't get full nuance in 140 characters. Can you believe it? <laughs> <laughs> and he thinks sometimes some things are funny when they're not necessarily funny to certain <laughs> kinds of people. You know, it's hard to be humorous and sarcastic and have that communicated in 140 characters too. I will say this from knowing Richard personally for two years. He is a darling man. There is not a a bigoted or sexist bone in his body. He is a humanist to the core. He loves his fellow man. And the work he has done is to promote the best in humanity. And I hope people keep that in mind. That he, the guy's written 13-plus books now, 12 of them mostly about important science topics, one of them as the, as the go-to book on atheist thought and reasoning. None of them hint at any kind of misogyny or any kind of... of um, bad feelings towards a particular group of people. So just keep that in mind when you're about to tear into him for some <laughs> recent errant tweet that he sent out there. Yeah, and I think I would also add to that that you're right. When you look at his longer essays uh, and you listen to him talk, like if it's a long lecture, long interview or something, you do get in more nuanced views. And I have no problem if people criticize him i just hope they're criticizing him for things he actually believes and not something like you said he may have inartfully stated uh if people want to join cfi the newly merged group uh what can they do to become members you can become a member of cfi and you can still become a member of rd app uh in both cases just go to the website and there's an easy access to membership we welcome you as members I think the more people we have who are putting their names into the atheist movement, into the non-believing movement, the more likely we are to one day have our dream of having having non-belief as a non-issue in American elections. Well, thank you so much for your time. We'll have links to both of those sites in our show notes. And good luck in your new endeavor. Can't wait to see what you do with the organization. Hannon, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time as well. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois. The music was composed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at patreon.com slash hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. And if you have any questions, feel free to email us at friendlyatheistpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Hemant Mehta, and I hope you'll join us next time. Thank you.